In our time this morning, we just sang a song about God's Word speaking over us, and uh, that's really our, our focus this morning, about the Word of God, and um, so a little group participation this morning. All right, the Bible is blank. Infallible. Man, that's a lot of syllables. That's a, that's a good one. The Bible is the true Word of God. True. Relevant. Bible is a roadmap. Is precious. Like it. Comfort. Well, it's a good place to start to get our, our minds set on where we're going to be. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 46 here in a moment. Um, A.W. Tozer, I like A.W. Tozer. If you're ever looking for some books to read, he's always a good author. He's no longer alive, but um, he's definitely relevant because he writes on the Word of God. Um, but he wrote concerning the Bible that the Bible is the only final, authentic source book of information concerning those things that have to do with our salvation. The Bible is our standard. Everything we do, think, or say has to be in absolute harmony with the Word of God. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into Him, that they may delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and center of their hearts. When it comes to the Bible as believers, we have a belief, or have to believe, that it is the authoritative, perfect, and complete Word which our Father has given us so we might live a life that is holy and pleasing to Him. And I'd like to begin, I know I told you to go to John 4, but uh, I'm going to have a couple other passages of Scripture up here to help us get an understanding of what the Bible says about itself. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy that these are not just words on a page, and this is not just a book that we can carry around, but it is the recorded voice of God wanting to speak to our hearts. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We turn to 2 Peter and we see that the Word of God is directed and guided by God. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of, of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We turn to the book of Hebrews and we see that the Bible is not an outdated book. It is not irrelevant. It is not uh, stale words on the page, but rather for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We turn to the book of Ephesians. We see that the Word of God is our defense and our offense. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We turn to the book of Proverbs and we read that every word within the Holy Bible can be trusted because it is absolute truth. Even the hard passages, 
Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. We turn to the book of Matthew and we see even though governments may fall, pandemics may end, relationships may come to a close, but the Word of God remains forever. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why is it important to begin with this foundation before we hop into our passage this morning? Because what we believe about the Word of God impacts our view of God and our living for God. This morning we turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll be in chapter 4 as we continue our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And our focus this morning is going to be believing in the Word. We've been in this series for quite some time. If you're keeping track, if you're taking notes, this is number 33 within our series. But we're just now beginning in the beginnings of Jesus' ministry in what is known as His Galilean Tour. Last week we spent time looking at how Jesus traveled from the south in Judea to the north in Galilee. And this morning's passage deals with Jesus' second sign or miracle within the region of Galilee dealing with the healing of an official son. And I think a lot of times we want to focus on this aspect, but this passage is about the authority of God's Word and a response to believe in that authority. It's a passage about faith. It's a passage about prayer. In our time this morning, we're really going to be focusing on four things pertaining to the Word of God. Let's begin in verse 46. And the Word of the Lord says, So he, that's Jesus, came to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. And as we sing that song, Father, I pray that your word would speak to our hearts. You are the God who knows everything about every individual in this room. You know our deepest, darkest secrets. You know our greatest rejoicings. Father, you know the things we're wrestling with. You know the things we're, we're doubting and having a lack of faith in. And we praise you because we come before you and nothing is hidden from you. And we come into your presence by the grace you have given us that we might receive grace upon grace. Father, I pray your spirit would open up your word, that it would be you speaking to us, that you would remove me from this equation, just use me as your instrument. But Lord, we want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. We want to be changed by you. So let your word go into the deepest parts of who we are. And we thank you for what you're going to do in us today. Forgive us where we have failed you. Let your kingdom come and will be done in this time. We pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So our passage is a connecting passage to where we were last week. We were in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17, 
where Jesus, as I mentioned, began His Galilean ministry tour. Here we find Jesus is now in the city of Cana, and John points out as a reminder for us and his original readers of this gospel that this is the, the place where Jesus did His first sign of turning water to wine. In John's gospel, he uses the word sign for what we define as miracles in the other gospels. Because the miracles of Jesus were to be the signs of His authority and He being the Messiah. They were the instruments that Jesus would use to not only make God known, but for the people to understand that He was, in fact, the Savior. Now, in hearing the news that Jesus was now back in the area of Galilee, an official from Capernaum makes his way to Jesus. Capernaum would have been about 17 miles from Cana where Jesus was, so it would be less than a day's travel. And the reason for the official's travel is because he had a son who was deathly ill, and John is led to point that out in verse 47. He was at the point of death. So we read this passage, we can hardly argue with the official son's action, or the official's actions. This man was desperate for something to be done for his son before he would die. His title implies that he has some sort of rank within the Roman government. It's widely speculated he was maybe head of the treasury, which would be over the taxes that the Romans would take from the Jewish people. Some believe that this official was in fact a Gentile. And that would fit within the framework of what John has been doing for the last couple chapters. Running from chapter 3 to chapter 5, you see in chapter 3... Jesus meets with a righteous Pharisee named Nicodemus. In chapter 4, Jesus meets with a Samaritan outcast woman in the region of Samaria. Here in the end of chapter 4, if this official is in fact Gentile, we see Jesus meeting with the Gentiles. And then we come to chapter 5, and Jesus goes and heals a paralytic Jew who would have been an outcast within his own society. And if this is the case, what John is doing is pointing out this is in fact Jesus, the Savior, Messiah for the entire world, for all people. Of course, the official being a Gentile is hypothetical, but we can gather that this father, he's a father, is desperate. He's wanting to see something done for his son. He's desperate for an intervention. And he has this belief, even if little, that Jesus is the answer. That Jesus could change the predicament of his son's life. And it leads to a very hard question, which Jamie and I got to talk about earlier in the week. When was the last time we have been desperate for Jesus? When was the last time our soul was craving for the Word of God? When was the last time we felt so dry and we knew nothing in this world could satisfy that dryness, but it was only the Word of God? This official, again, is a father. He's desperate. He reveals that he is going to be completely reliant upon Jesus, the living word, to step in and do something. But no doubt the official would have had the best resources at his fingertip. Yet nothing was working. But he catches wind that there is this miracle worker. He's heard of the miracles he's already done in the area. He's heard of the miracles he's done in Jerusalem, and this miracle worker is now just up the road. He can get there in less than a day. Up the road, which John uses in his gospel as a statement 
So just let us know that Cana is above sea level, whereas Capernaum is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So when John says to come down in verse 47, and the official was going down in verse 51 when he returned home, what John is doing is inserting some little geographical information that his original readers would have understood. But it's to let us know that when we're going up to Jesus, he's going up sea level and he's asking him to come down. The odd thing about this event, if you remember when we read through it, here we have Jesus, the, invisible, the image of the invisible God. The God which we say is a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of loving kindness. And we read how Jesus responds to this man's plea for him to come to his son. I think we all would be taken back. That's not the way we would expect God to respond to our pleas of desperation. We cry out to God in the midst of desperation. The last thing we would expect is for God to rebuke us. But that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 48. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. Now, to be fair, Jesus isn't just focusing on the official son. The you in the Greek in that verse is plural, implying Jesus is saying you people. Jesus is speaking to all the people who are listening in on this interaction but how would we respond to such a statement today when we plead out our desperations to God in prayer? Just put it in perspective, can you imagine if you called me as your pastor and you begged me to come to your house or come to the hospital because you had a family member that was on the deathbed and you simply wanted me to come and pray with you and to pray over them. And my response to you is all you think is that I'm here for your benefit. I imagine you would take back the invitation, wouldn't you? Maybe you start looking for a new church, new pastor. question is, we should ask when we're reading this passage, is why does Jesus respond in this manner? The Father had a simple request, a request that was not out of the possibility of Jesus doing, not out of His power and His authority to do it. Surely Jesus had compassion on this official if not at least on the Son, like He did in other times in His ministry. But what Jesus is doing is He's calling out not only the Father's, but the people's intention. He wants them to recognize that He is not here to show them signs. He is here to be their Savior. He wants the people to recognize their need for Him and not their need for Him to do something for them or for them to see Jesus wasn't going to be a pawn for the people. He was not going to be a sideshow stage act where the people can look at him and go, ooh, ah. Jesus was not going to play in their game. What he's doing is he's moving the Father to a deeper understanding of faith. The Father obviously had some faith in Jesus. He had a faith Jesus would be able to do something. But Jesus wanted this Father to have a faith not in what Jesus could do, but who Jesus was. This would be a true change that needed to happen in this father's heart, not just the healing of his son. So Jesus rebukes, gives this rebuke at the father's request, which also allows the father to grow in his understanding of prayer. Though the word prayer is never mentioned in this passage, this is in fact what we do when we speak with God and converse with God. This man comes to Jesus and he's lifting up his prayer to God in the flesh. We see the father isn't going to take no for an answer. There's a lot at stake. His, his son's life is on the brink. And he shows his persistence in verse 49. He says, Sir, 
come down before my child dies. This father had a passion for his son to live, which led him to Jesus. He had a persistence before Jesus, which led to a revelation of power. Passion, persistence, power. All elements of prayer. We should take note what happened. His father wanted the physical presence of Jesus to come to his house so he'd heal his son. Here's the thing, did Jesus go with him? No. Jesus simply speaks the word, go, your son will live. The Greek for will live is in the future tense, but it doesn't carry the meaning that your son's going to get better eventually. Rather, it carries the meaning that the father's son is now completely restored and already at full health. The word recovering in verse 51 means that the son is now well and healthy and he's alive. And after Jesus says this to this father, go, your son will live, this becomes the moment of truth. This official take Jesus at his word, even though Jesus did not bless his house with his presence, or does this official, this father, deny the words of Jesus as truth? This is where we all are in our battle when it comes to trusting in the word of God. We can read it. We can hear what it says. We can have it explained through sermons or podcasts or commentaries or even our own study. But what do we do with it once we come to understand the Word of God? Do we accept it as truth and do we act upon it? Or do we simply attain the knowledge and then wrestle with an unbelief and a failure to act? The Bible says in James 1.22, "...but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 11, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says the wise builder is the one who can withstand the storms that come in life because he hears the words of mine and he does them. See, how we respond, accept, and apply the word of God reveals what we truly believe about the word of God. The official believed. He took Jesus at His word and He headed home to only be met by His servants who were coming up to tell Him that His son was now fully alive and well. When the official asks, when did this happen? They tell Him the time and He knows immediately that's when Jesus said, your son will live. And He fell into a deeper level of faith. It says, the man believed, in verse 50, the man believed the word of that Jesus spoke to him. So what does this tell us about the Word of God? How can we believe when God speaks to us through His Word? We have to understand what the Word is. First off, the Word is the power of God. This official had power. This official had resources. He had some level of wealth to have servants. But all of his power, all of his resources, all of his possessions paled in comparison to the power and authority of the living Word of Jesus Christ. This Word which we have, we can hold in our hand. Some of y'all are doing it on your phones. At least I hope you're in the Word on your phone right now. But we can pull it out day or night. We can spend time in the morning and the evening reading. This is the same Word which spoke all things into existence. It isn't just a book, it's the voice of God and the power of God that we hold in our hands. Not like the power, like the hammer of Thor, 
But this, this word empowers us to have an abundant joy no matter the circumstances in our life. This word empowers us to preserve through the storms of life. This word empowers us to see the world clearly and as it is. This word and the combination, the Holy Spirit inside of us, are the tools that God gives us so we might be partakers of the divine nature. This word empowers us to lead people out of the darkness of sin and into the marvelous light of salvation. This word is absolute truth. That means truth for all time and all places, and it will never fade. This word will feed your soul. It will enlighten your mind, and it will open your eyes. How dare we ever put it down? This is the word of God. It has the power to change hearts of the evilest, of men. In our passage, the main focus seems to be the healing of the official son. Matter of fact, I imagine you have your Bible open, the subtitle above verse 46. Mine reads, Jesus heals an official son. But that doesn't capture the full power which happens here and is manifested. The healing of the official son was only one of the miracles. There are, in fact, three miracles happening all through the power of God's spoken word. Obviously, the official son is healed. Praise the Lord. But the son's situation isn't the only one which has changed. The father believes. And he doesn't believe that Jesus can do a sign or a miracle. He believes in who Jesus is. And did you catch it at the very end? Not only did he believe, but his entire household believed. Most likely because the healing of the son and the testimony of the father. That means all of his family and all of his servants, everyone who lived in that household came to believe this Jesus is in fact the Messiah and my Savior. All through five words that were spoken. That's the evidence of God's power. That God doesn't have to say a lot for His power to be revealed. Let there be light. And what happened? Light. There's power in this Word. Which is why we as God's people need to be in this Word. So the power of the Word can flow out of our life. And our light can shine into the darkness. We also learn another lesson. The Word is the presence of God. The official's initial quest is for Jesus to come down to his house. Come and heal my son who is about to die. And Jesus looks at this father and denies his request. It's a simple lesson right there. Sometimes God's Word denies us. There are certain things within God's Word which we are told to do and certain things in God's Word we are told not to do. And those are all to protect us. The Word of God tells us that everything is permissible because of our freedom in Christ, but not everything is beneficial. And by Jesus' spoken Word in the presence of the healing, compassionate Father rested on the Son 17 miles away. Jesus didn't have to physically go to the boy which this father did not understand at the moment. Jesus simply had to speak the word and the presence and power of God went. There's a passage in Hebrews which I love. I think many of us are probably familiar with. It comes from Hebrews chapter 4. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy 
and find grace to help in the time of need. When we open the Word, whatever medium you use to get into God's Word, we draw near to the throne of grace. We open this book and we enter into the presence of the Almighty. We are given the opportunity to go to places like the prophet Isaiah went and the apostle John went as they came in to the throne room of the Lord. We are given the opportunity to hear the voice of God speaking over our hearts. The opportunity to hear and join with the heavenly host in singing praises to the King. And the opportunity to convene and connect and conversate with our heavenly Daddy. All by opening the Word of God. This is the doorway to the throne room of heaven and the presence of God that we can go to every single day. We also see in our passage that the Word is the key to faith in God. This father, this official, he had some level of faith as he headed up to Cana that Jesus could do something. And he might have just been completely desperate and thought, what could it hurt to go and check this guy out? But in the beginning, the official wanted Jesus for his son, not realizing that he himself needed Jesus for his own life, for his own spiritual healing. He came to Jesus in desperation, not for who Jesus was, but what Jesus might be able to do. Yet the moment the official had to truly step out on faith when Jesus spoke the power of the words in which he trusted, then he came to fully understand after his servants told him the welfare of his child, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And you notice the official had to believe the Word without seeing or knowing the effects of the Word. He simply had to trust in the power and authority of what Jesus spoke. He came seeking a miracle and Jesus revealed to him and all those listening, Jesus is not impressed nor promotes a signs and wonders faith. See, if we only believe in God because we think, we think it forces God to do things for us, then our faith is in the wrong thing. Our faith in God's Word doesn't dictate what God does in our life. You cannot read through the Gospels. You cannot open the pages of Scripture. You cannot hear the words of Jesus and conclude that Jesus commends or supports a word of faith, health and wealth, or prosperity gospel. This is the very thing Jesus is calling this official out and all those who are listening in on this day. That Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God are not here for our entertainment, our personal achievements, or even our personal welfare. The Word of God is the key to a faith in God, which is the key to salvation. God does not have to do any more for us than save us from hell. One commentator wrote, John consistently understands Jesus as the one who does not reject the miraculous, but rather rejects any demand for miraculous sign and wonder. If our faith is based on what has God done for me lately, then our faith is wrong and it is futile. Our faith is not on what is God going to do, but our faith is in what God has already done. And what has God done? Well, I like to steal from an old hymn. Throw that up there, Ethan. God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died 
tuned by my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. You know the chorus, let's sing it. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Life is worth the living because he lives. That's what God has done. We'll see one more thing we can learn from this passage, the final thing. The word is life. Words spoken by Jesus brought life back to this dying boy. Words spoken by Jesus brought real life to this father. The words spoken by Jesus brought real life to this official's household. Sometime today or later this week, what I'd like to challenge, encourage you to do is read Psalm 119. I've issued this challenge before, and I think like three of you took me up on it, so that's why we got to do it again. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm of all the psalms. It is the longest chapter in all of the Bible, and it's all about the Word of God. I'd like to read just a few verses of a 176-verse chapter. So set aside some time to do it, okay? Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Verse 116, uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever, giving me an understanding that I may live. Verse 174 through 175, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. It was the word of God which brought life back into this official, into his son, and into his household. And it is the word of God which will bring life back into others. Concerning the word of God, the book of Proverbs says in chapter 4, verse 22, For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. God's word is life. It created life. It saves life. And it gives life. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to believe in the word that God is speaking to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Have you accepted that word as truth in your life and have you begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I'd like to give you that opportunity this morning. It begins by admitting that you're a sinner, meaning you do things you know you shouldn't do. And you're ashamed of those at times. You know those are not holy and those are not pleasing to God. You fall short of God's standard. But in this moment, in your heart, you believe that God sent His Son to die for your sins. He rose again that you could be forgiven for all your sins and be given eternal life. And if that is the belief in your heart in this moment, the Bible leads you to one more step. 
If you believe that in the heart, the Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To confess is a public declaration of your faith. We're coming to this time of invitation, and you may need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask you to come down and confess, I want to be saved, I want to believe, I want Jesus. We'll pray together, we'll celebrate together. Maybe you're here and you've already made that statement, but you've been kind of lackluster in this this year, and you want to change that. Just tell God, God, I'm sorry, I have abandoned your word, or I've not been in your word as much as I should. Give me a desire as the deer pants. Let my, my heart pant for your word. This is time of invitation. I'm going to invite Nick. Bridget, you coming too? They're going to lead us in a song. I'm going to stand down here. I don't stand down here just because I think it's cool. I stand down here because if you need to respond, I want you to come down and let it be known. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word that it is living and active. Thank you that your word will never change. We can take it to the bank every single day and every single moment. Thank you no matter what's going on in our life and in this world, it does not surprise you, the God who reigns. And I pray in this moment, if there's individual or individuals here who have not accepted your word and have not believed in you as their Savior, Father, they would walk down this aisle and let it be known. Thank you that this is an incredible gift you give to everyone. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, let us be individuals who are passionate to be in your word and to hear your voice speaking over us. Again, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence once again. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.